You can uh, turn to Genesis 3. I'll be reading that in a moment. Also, if you have your catechisms, you can, uh, you can get them if you need them. Maybe you've memorized these and you don't need them. We'll review a few questions here. We're doing our catechism study, and we're on question 13 today. What a great situation God has put us in at creation. We've, we've been seeing that in the catechism. What a good situation it was as we've been going along in this study. We have seen that He made us gloriously in His own image with dominion over the creatures. Let's uh, review question 10. Let's confess this one together. Question 10. How did God create man? God created man, male and female, after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. Being made in God's image does not mean that we resemble God in our physical appearance, but that we can, on a creaturely level, of course, reflect something of his character. Just prayed through the Ten Commandments and we see something of that. His image, we're his image in knowledge, which means that we can know the truth. His image in righteousness, which means that we can live in the love that he has called us to live. His image in holiness means that we can be his worshipers who are devoted to him. And having dominion means that we can have authority and can govern the earth and use it for good. We've seen that when God made us also, that he enriched us with a full life in paradise, in the Garden of Delights, the Garden of Eden. We saw that he gave us three marvelous ordinances in the garden to shape our lives. There was the Sabbath, by which we would come to God and remember him as our creator and our provider and redeemer. There was labor, that we should cultivate the earth and use it in ways that bless one another. There was marriage, that we should live together in the order that God established and fill the earth with people who also bear his image. And we have seen that God entered into a covenant of life with us in the garden. This was what we looked at last time in question 12. So let's go over this one again as well. Question 12. What special act of providence did God exercise toward man in the estate wherein he was created? When God had created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death. So the relationship that God set up with us at creation was one in which he promised eternal life to us. And we all we had to do was continue in that beautiful relationship that he had given us, leaving it to him to rule and us to follow. And we would have all, we would, we would have had everything forever. We would have had God's rich blessing forever and been established and confirmed in that life. But of course, if you look around us, very plain to see that we did not continue in that wonderful estate, that happy condition with God. It's obvious that we're not in paradise now, and that as the image of God, 
that we are grossly distorted. We are an image that misrepresents him, designed to represent him, but rather that misrepresents him. And that the earth takes dominion over us rather than the other way around. The subject of the fall of man is introduced to us in today's question. Question 13. Let's confess this one together. Question 13. Did our first parents continue in the estate wherein they were created? Our first parents, being left to the freedom of their own will, fell from the estate wherein they were created by sinning against God. That's our question for this week. In our scripture reading that's related to this is from Genesis 3, the first eight verses. So please give me your careful attention as I read it to you. This is Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Very thank the Lord that he has given us this revelation that we can know how it came about that we are as we are. We're going to explore the fall of man in detail over the next weeks as we continue in the catechism, Lord willing. Today, we'll look at how the fall and all sin is an act of our own free will. Um, That's what we'll focus on today. Then, in the next sermon, we'll look at at what sin is. That's question number 14. Then, we will look at what the particular sin was that caused the fall. We just read about it, eating the forbidden fruit. And we'll look at that in, in detail that week. Question 15. Then how all fell when Adam fell because he was our representative. Question 16. Then we will have a few sermons showing the consequences of the fall. the Falling into the state of sin and misery and uh, both sin and misery. And uh, that will be questions 17 through 19. And then with question 20, we'll begin the great subject of how God redeems us from the fall through Jesus Christ. And that will go on for quite a while. So you see that there is a whole lot more to say about the fall than just what we're looking at today. But again, today's focus is on how the fall was an act of Adam and Eve's own free will. And really how all sin is an act of our free will. The Catechism mentions that that in the first part of question 13, our first parents being left to the freedom of their own will, 
fell from the estate wherein they were created by singing against God. So let's begin, first of all, with this assertion. Free will means that your will and your actions are your own. They're not somebody else's. When Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, it was clearly their own action. It was clearly something that they chose to do. Yes, the devil tempted Eve and deceived her, but it was still her action. She took and she ate of her own volition. She did it because she chose to do it, because she saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and desirable to make one wise. How did she do that? Well, how did she see that? Some have suggested that the serpent had likely had an extended conversation with the woman in which he ate the fruit before her. That's how it was that the woman saw that it was good for food and able to make one wise. She saw that he ate and didn't die in the way that you might expect. This wise and lovely serpent, who is only a beast of the earth as far as this woman knew, was able to talk with her, and he did not die. Just think what it would mean for her and for Adam if they ate. The serpent did not die, and he assured her that she would not die either. So she took and she ate. She gave it to her husband, and he ate. They ate because they wanted to eat. They ate because they chose to eat. Now you can also see that the action was their own because God holds them responsible for their action. And they knew they were responsible. Even though Adam blames Eve and Eve blames the serpent, God systematically addresses each of them with the appropriate punishment. The serpent was certainly responsible for what he did. and His head would be crushed in the end because of it. Eve was responsible for what she had done and she would have struggles with with childbirth and also in rearing children, bringing them up, and also with her husband and her relationship with him. And Adam was responsible for what he had done and would experience the weight of the curse leading to death, to physical death. We, we will look at all of these things in greater detail in the future, the consequences of the fall and such. But for now, just see that Adam and Eve were responsible for what they did because it was their own action. It proves that it was their own action, an act of their own free will. The Bible simply assumes that your will is your own. As Jesus puts it when he speaks of how they did away with John the baptizer, Mark 9.13, he says, they did whatever they wished. It was an act of their free will. In the scriptures, whatever people do has always seemed to be an act of their free will. Even when God sends the king of Assyria against his people to punish them for their sins, the king of Assyria is said to do what he wishes. It is his own wicked action, even though he is the instrument that God used to punish his people. You can read about that in Isaiah 10, where the Lord says in verse 6 of the king of Assyria, I will send him against an ungodly nation. Well, that's an act of God's sovereignty. God is sending an enemy to his people who are ungodly for their correction. And then it says in verse 7, Yet he, the king of Assyria, does not mean so, nor does his heart think so, 
but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off not a few nations. So the king of Assyria is going because he wants to take control. He wants to have dominion. That's in his heart. He's doing his own thing. But God is also sovereign at the same time. So you see that a person's will is his own, even when God uses them as an agent to do his work. You all know that this is true of your will. You know that your will and your actions are your own. You know that nobody can force you to will or to do anything. Now, of course, a father can force his rebellious two-year-old to get in his car seat. He can take him and he can put him in and he can buckle the straps. Sometimes people have to do that with their children. But that's not the child's action. That's the father's action. And you know that even if the child obeys against his will, I mean that he does not want to get in that car seat, but he does because he's been taught by his parents to obey. And I say that even if the child obeys against his will in that sense, his getting in is still, if he gets in, it's an act of his own will. He has two things working together, you see. He does not want to get in the car seat because maybe he wants to go and play with his toys or doesn't want to sit there or whatever. But he also, at the same time, within himself, wants to obey his parents. And his will is stronger, his will to obey is stronger than his will to do his own thing. So you see that when everything inside of him is all added together, it is his will to get in that car seat. It's the same way when you do something like exercise, when you don't want to. You know, you're on an exercise program and there are things in you that tip the balance of your will. Enough reasons that make you want to, uh, to go ahead and, and exercise to, to overcome the opposition that's in you. It's your action. It's according to your own free will. But maybe, maybe you're doing walking for your exercise and there's, the weather's not so nice and you had a late night and a bunch of things. Then your will gets swayed over the other way so that you, but, but it's still your choice in the end. Even if you go ahead and go on a day like that, say, I went against my will. Well, actually, you went according to your will because your, what dominated was your desire to go ahead and exercise. You know that you have within you all sorts of pulls on your will, swaying you this way and swaying you that way. You have your conscience. You have your views of things. You have your judgments. You have your reason. You have various affections and desires. And some of those are sinful desires, sinful lusts. Sometimes these things inside of you are contradictory. And sometimes they cause you to make one choice one day. And another choice another day, like what I was just talking about with exercise. One day you stick to your diet, another day you don't. One day you read God's word, another day you don't. But still, at last, it is your choice. The things that happen around you are not responsible for your choice. You are responsible. Even if other people are pressuring you, it is still your choice whether you give in to their pressure or not. You can never blame other people. Now, it is in this that we see a difference between a godly person and an ungodly person. A godly person is one who is exercised or 
disciplined in godliness, as 1 Timothy 4.7 puts it. As Hebrews 5.14 says, he has his senses exercised to discern both good and evil. But an ungodly person is a bundle of contradictions because he's not been walking in delighted obedience before God. So he's got, he's, he goes this way, he goes that way. There's no training in any one way or another. He has no fixed principles or habits in him. One day he follows his conscience. Another day he is chasing after some lust. Another day he is using his reason, but in an ungodly way of scheming about something. I have spoken to you before about how complicated it is for a man like Herod Herod Antipas, who had a wife telling him to kill John the Baptist, who had guests that were with him that he was embarrassed before and and wanted to to look good before and, and please. He was worried about public opinion. And his conscience was struggling because he knew that John was a prophet. And you see, he wasn't trained and exercised in doing the thing that God says. He was always weighing all these things to to make a decision. He was a bundle of contradictions. It was so much it is so much simpler when your single desire is to do the will of God. Then you exercise yourself in godliness. When as Jesus Your meat and drink is to do the will of God. You exercise yourself in godliness and your senses are trained to discern good and evil. And you follow what is right. But whether you are godly or ungodly, you act in every case according to your own will. Nevertheless, your will is never free. You act according to your free will, but your will is never free from your character. So your character changes and your will changes. We may ask the question as to which person is the most free. The ungodly man like Herod, who has everything open to him and is a bundle of contradictions, is he free? The child for whom it is a struggle, whether he's going to come when he's called or whether he's going to put up a fight or what he's going to do, is he the one that is the most free? The church member who must always struggle whether or not he's going to tithe or not, how much he's going to go toward tithing if he's not, whether he's going to go to church this week or not, these sorts of things. Or the one who is, is it that one that is the most free? Or is it the person who is habituated in godliness, disciplined in godliness? The one who already knows what to do, whose desires and reasons and reason and conscience and views and judgments are all settled. I say this because I don't want you to fall into the confusion of thinking that the person who is free, the most free, is the person who is free to go any old way. That's the person who's not settled, who is not mature in his walk with God. That's not the kind of freedom that you want. The freedom that you want is the freedom from sin where All of you and every part of you is set to do the will of God. That is the true liberty of the sons of God. Listen, if you've been converted, you've been brought into his house forever. And he's written his law in your heart and given you a desire for that. And that's your destiny. You're going to do the will of God more and more as you're sanctified until the perfect day, the day when 
we go to be with him and then you will do the will of God perfectly. The Lord himself is the freest of all beings. His will is always bound to truth and right. He cannot do anything other. But you see, he does not want to do anything other. He is the freest of all beings, not because he has an unformed character that can go any which old way, but because his character is perfectly conformed. And therefore, he is free to be all that he desires to be. But you see, when it all comes down to it, whatever you will at any moment is always your choice. You are free. It is yours. But you're never free from yourself. You're never free from what you are, from your own principles, from your own character and conscience and passions and desires. What you will is a true free expression of who you are. Jesus put it like this, Matthew 15, 19. For out of the heart, the inner person, proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. It's not what happens outside of you, but what comes up from within you. What you do, what you will to do comes out of you, out of your heart, out of the sum total of who you are at the moment of decision. You are responsible for what you will do. But there are challenges to this idea that your will is free and that it is your own, that you are not responsible for the acts of your will. Let's look at some of those challenges that suggest that our will is not really free. There's the challenge of God's decree. When we studied about God's decree, we saw that the scripture is clear that God is foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. It is, if that is true, how can we say that our actions are our own? We're just doing whatever God planned. We simply do what he has decreed. But the scripture constantly affirms that while God has planned everything, and it's always true that we do what he's decreed, that in the way God works out his decree, our actions are still our own. We're not forced. You don't have to be able to totally figure that out. You have to believe that because that's what's revealed in the word. Remember what I said about the king of Assyria earlier. God sent him against his people because he wanted to punish them. But it was totally the king of Assyria's wicked choice to go. He had his reasons and God had his reasons for the same event. This is the same thing that is brought out in Acts 4, 26 through 28. We looked at this on Friday where it speaks about those who crucified Christ saying the kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do what? To do whatever your hand, God's hand, and your purposes determined before to be done. So you see, God's purpose was fulfilled by what these wicked men did. Herod and Pontius Pilate and Gentiles and the Jews and their leaders crucifying Christ. That was exactly what God had appointed and purposed. It was his decree. But it was also an act of their free will. They weren't doing something that they were forced into. They wanted to get rid of Jesus. They wanted to deliver him up to be crucified. So everyone both acted, uh, doing it for different reasons. 
R.L. Dabney expresses this whole matter quite well when he says, God's mode of effectuating his purposes, of bringing about his purposes, as to the acts of free agents, is not by compelling their acts or will contrary to their preferences and dispositions, either secretly or openly, but by operating through their dispositions. So what you do, whether it is what God, though it is what God planned, is still totally your own action, an action of your own and an expression of who you are and what you are. Now someone will say then, another objection, what about Satan? Can we not say that the devil makes me do this or that? Well, it is true that we're in bondage to him before we're converted and that we're taken captive by him to do his will on account of the fall. And it is true that in rare cases of demon possession, he can take such control of a person's body that he can throw them around where they don't want to go because it's not an act of their will, but it's a demon inside of them. Being thrown around by a demon possession or having a demon speak through the organ of your mouth is indeed not your own action. But but the action on the part of the one who does that was that they gave themselves over to the demon in the first place. That's where their will came in. But this is the extraordinary case of demon possession. We're not talking about that. We're talking about Satan's influence on us in the ordinary course of life. Though you are a slave to him before you come to Christ and can be taken captive by him for a time and temptation, your actions as his slave are still your own. When Satan tempts us and leads us into sin... It's not by taking possession of us and committing the sin for us, but it's by leading us and persuading us to choose the sinful action. It's our action, and we're totally responsible for it. It's we who do the craving for vile things because of what we are. We who are enticed by the vile things that Satan would would put before us to lure us and to to lead us and to encourage us to do wrong through other people or whatever means he might use. That's what he did with Eve, isn't it, that we read about. It's true that when you are addicted, that you feel completely helpless and that you're in bondage to sin, you are in bondage to sin. It's true that God delivers us over to bondage. When you're addicted to porn or drugs, God has turned you over to it because of your ingratitude. Scripture is very clear on that. We looked at this on Friday too. Romans 1.21 says, Although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was darkened. Then verse 24 continues, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. But do you see? It's because of what you are, an ungrateful person who does not worship God, that God delivers you over to bondage to the things that you're worshiping. It is an act of your will to refuse to acknowledge God, and then He delivers you over to your addiction, over to Satan, and you're helpless. Whenever we are addicted to things, they don't give us pleasure, but yet we can't get get on without them. You may hate the drugs or the porn, but it is in you 
who must turn back to God to be delivered. Somewhat related to this, people will blame their sin on others. We have an example of this in the bitter people in Ezekiel 18 who complained that the whole reason that they were in exile was because of the sin of their parents. What could they do? I mean, suppose that you were born in exile, say, 10 years after the exile, and now you're 20 years old, so it's been 30 years during the exile, and the prophet tells you that you've got 40 more years of exile. Well, you're going to be uh, 60 years old. You had nothing to do with it. Your parents ate the sour grapes, and now your teeth are set on edge. And you didn't eat the sour grapes. They did. You're bearing consequences for what they did. God tells such persons that they can repent, and that if they do that, they can serve God in Babylon, like Daniel and his friends did. Perhaps you had ungodly parents, or parents that did not discipline you, or parents that were unreasonable, or parents that set a terrible example for you. Do you know what God says about that? What do we just see? He tells you to repent. Don't wallow in it and say, oh, I've, this is how I am because of my parents. My parents didn't treat me right. That's why I'm so bitter. That's why this or that. No, you are free to repent. It's your choice. You do not have to keep on the road that they set you on. Come to God. Be delivered by Christ and serve the Lord. It's true that parents are responsible and that parents set their children on a course and form them into bad habits and responses. They set a direction for them. And the parents are going to answer to God for that. Woe to those who cause one of these little ones to stumble, Jesus said. But it's up to you whether you continue to follow that direction that they set you in, whether it's good or evil. God calls you to follow him. It's your choice in the end, whether you do or whether you make excuses. You cannot blame your parents for what you are. The Lord graciously calls you to repent and be saved. There's a huge lie propagated in our society that what happened to us when we were children, now that we're stuck with, it's true that you have scars and you'll have to struggle, but we have a God who delivers us. Now, let's look at another challenge to the teaching that our actions are an act of our own free will. This challenge has to do particularly with our first parents. There are those who look at the sin of Adam and they say, how could the fall be an expression of who he was if he was upright? That's a good question, isn't it? I mean, if Adam was a righteous man, how could he then have such a free will that he would, he would sin as he did? Well, first of all, I want you to see that the scripture is clear that this is how it was, that Adam did fall and that he was made upright. That is a fact. We have seen that Adam was created after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. He comes from the hand of God without sin. And we have seen, we just read it today, that he fell. Solomon states it quite plainly in Ecclesiastes 7.29. Truly, this only have I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So we see that it's so. Our first parents fell, being left to the freedom of their own will. How can that be explained? Well, it's explained like this. Our first parents were upright, but they did not have a fixed, unchangeable character. 
They were subject to fall. They were given the ability to do right, but they were also given the ability to apostatize. Now, you could think of it in this way, that they were on the road going perfectly along doing the will of God. They were upright. They were righteous. They were in a car, so to speak, and they would not run out of gas or run off the road or bump into someone or something or take a wrong turn. They were perfectly able to go along on the path that God had appointed. They saw sin as sin and had no intention, say, of, uh, of murdering someone or of being greedy or of cursing God. Those weren't the things, they weren't, they weren't tempted. They, didn't, they weren't attracted by those things. But what they could do and what they were given ability to do was to completely change their course. They could deliberately make a turn onto an entirely different road. A road of autonomy as opposed to a road of submission to God. Satan told Eve that she could be like God. Instead of tracking along with God's way of good and evil, she could be like God and set her own way of good and evil. That was the temptation that was brought before her to continue in God's way or to shift over on a different road and go her own way. And then you see everything would change. Understand that it is rightly our own way to belong to God, to be in submission to Him, to be led by Him. We were put on that road at the start. But Satan was saying, but better still than that road is for you to be in the lead, to be your own road, to live your own way, to do what you want. We're best off to want what God wants. That's what true freedom is for us because we're made in God's image. But Eve was deceived into thinking that it would be better to be free to be as God. And so she took the road to autonomy and her husband did too. It's helpful to compare what Adam and Eve were in the garden with what we are now. They were upright, perfectly on the road with God but able to take an entirely different road of autonomy. And that's just what they did. Once they took that road, they in themselves had no way to get back on the road to God. Not without a Redeemer. Not without a Savior. They were in bondage to the way that they had chosen. They were dead in trespasses and sins. They were on the highway to hell. They could not serve God. They could not do the will of God. And that's what the Bible means when it says that we were all born in sin. When we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We were born on the wrong road. But in His great mercy, the Lord has chosen to reach down and rescue His elect. He does this by opening our eyes to the fact that we are dead in sin. Showing us how wrong we are to be going our own way. He shows us how wrong we are and He begins to change us. And he shows us the way that he made for us to come back to him. And of course, that way is Jesus Christ, the Savior. The Savior that he sent from heaven. Jesus, who came to establish a kingdom of righteousness in this sinful world. To found this kingdom, 
he first had to go down the road that Adam and Eve were on at the first and not turn off. And that he did. And then he had to pay the penalty of those who had to be, were to be members of his kingdom. He had to pay the penalty of their sin on the cross. And he did that too. So if we come to him for salvation, we can get back on the road with God, with Christ. And once we do, we cannot get off that road the way Adam and Eve did. Because he keeps us. This is what John affirms in 1 John 3, 9. When he says, whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Now, we'll read that and we'll say, what do you mean you cannot sin? We, we, we do sin. No, he's talking about sinning the way Adam did. Getting up on the wrong road. Once we're on the road with Christ our Redeemer, we have the seed of life and we can't leave that road entirely. The sin that John is talking about is the sin of turning away from God and going on a different road like Adam did. But unlike Adam and Eve, we do not go along perfectly on the road of God. You see, they went along perfectly, but they could completely veer off. We cannot veer off if we've been redeemed, but neither do we go along perfectly now. We're on the road, but we can run off the road. We can have a flat tire. We can bump into someone. We can be slowed down. This is the kind of sin that John also talks about in his first epistle. In 1 John 1, 8, when he's talking about people that walk in the light, and he says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Of course, we have many sins in our life. We commit sins, but not like Adam. We don't sin in the way of changing roads. We're on the road for keeps. And as to our will in all of this, it is truly our choice to get on the road. But it was a choice that we could not reject because God changed us by his Holy Spirit. He brought us into the light by the new birth. He opened our eyes. He changed our hearts so that we could see the truth and so that we could embrace the truth, so that we could love God. It's not that you were forced, but rather that you were cleansed from the corruption that you were bound in so that you couldn't refuse God's will, couldn't refuse his call. And if you're really born again of God's spirit, you will never go on a different road. But you are not yet so perfectly changed that you will not also of your own free will stumble and veer and bump into things. And that brings me to the next point, the next challenge to free will and to saying that our actions are an expression of who we are. What about the problem of doing things that are not consistent with who you really are? Isn't that possible? And does that suggest that we are not free? Doesn't Paul talk about that struggle in Romans 7? Doesn't he even say in Romans 7:19, for the good that I will to do, this is my will, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. I do, he says, what is contrary to my will. He goes even so far as to say that it is not him that does it in Romans 7.22. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find in a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. What does this mean? It sounds like Paul is saying that sin is something that he does, 
but that it is not an act of his will because as a Christian, he wills to do good. If you're a Christian, you know exactly what he's talking about. (laughs) You want to follow God. You get up, you pray, seeking to do the Lord's will, but then you find that you've sinned again. There you are, losing control, angry, filled with lustful desires, whatever it is. Paul is not denying that these are his actions. He's struggling with the contradiction that I talked about before. I told you before that our will is the sum total of our desires and our reason and our views and our passions and all that's in us. And because there is still corruption in us, they're not always consistent. We're on the road of God's way of following Christ by his grace. And that's where we want to be. And that's where we want to stay. So overall, that's what we want and where we're going. But sometimes we're lured away into sin. But it is still we who sin. We need to be more fully changed. Paul affirms this in Romans 7. He affirms that as a Christian, he still has corruption within him and he cries out for deliverance. He knows it's him. He knows that the reason he veers is because of what's in him. This cry is in Romans 7.24 where he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he answers in verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, that's the old corrupt self, the law of sin. So you see that he does not deny that it is still his action. I serve, he says, in this way and that way. It's a part of his wretchedness from which he yearns to be delivered and knows that he will be delivered by Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the most important thing of all. The actions that you take are a true expression of who you are. A wretched sinner. Sin is our own expression of our fallen character. I also hope very much that you will respond the right way to this teaching. Don't make excuses. Take responsibility for what you do. Confess your sins to God. Confess deeply without pointing a finger at something else, blaming something else, recognizing that your sin is your sin and its expression, the expression of who you are. Don't shift the blame like Adam tried to do in the garden. Don't try to make excuses that it was the woman that God gave you or that it was the devil or whatever. Just own up to the fact that you're still a sinner and ask God to forgive you and to deliver you from this body of death. The sin that is in you is nobody's but your own. I'm amazed at the length that people will go to when they have sinned to avoid owning up to what they have done causes so much trouble in their lives. They don't just go on, confess, confess fully to it and be done with it. God takes care of it when you confess it to him. He leaves you to deal with it when you don't. Of course, you can't deal with it. What are you going to do? Don't you see, Jesus can deliver you from sin. That's what he came to do. That was his business as our Redeemer. He can take you off the highway to hell in the first place and put you on the highway to God. 
He does that by changing you from within and by covering your sins by his sacrifice on the cross. You are what you are, but he can change you from what you are into something else so that you're changed all over, not just your will, but you're changed through and through. That's something that he does. Then you will be able freely to serve him. You won't serve him perfectly in this world, but if you come to him, you'll never stop serving him. And then one day you will be perfected in glory. It won't be as if you're being dragged against your will, but you'll start to serve him because you'll want to serve him because you will be changed, delivered from your wretchedness and corruption. Like we saw this morning with, with uh, children that um, when we're God's children, then he, he changes our whole character so that we want to serve him. It's not a bondage. Oh, I've got to do what God said. No. Yeah, sometimes we're struggling because of our sin. But as God works in us, that sin becomes less and less controlling of us and we're able to go forward in serving God. We should be so very thankful for the, the salvation that he has provided for us. Please stand and let's, let's give thanks to the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your kindness and your mercy to us, for the salvation that you have given to us. For Lord, we confess that we are sinners. Father, we love to blame other people, to blame our upbringing, blame our parents, blame uh, the devil or, or whatever, Lord, our circumstances. We're always looking to say that our actions are not our own. But Father, they are our own. Whatever we do, we see how the Lord Jesus, when he was under pressure, that that's when the beauty of his character came out. Father, what comes out is what's inside of us. When you crush something with affliction, then whatever comes out of it is what it is. And so it is, Lord, for us. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to take responsibility for our sin. Because until we do that, we don't, how can we really come to the Redeemer? How can we really look to Christ? Father, we pray that we would do that overall if we haven't. If we've never been converted, if we've never really come to Christ, you would help us to humble ourselves and recognize that we are in desperate need of a Redeemer. And if we have come to Him and we're on the road with Christ, we thank you, Lord, we'll never go off that road, we'll never apostatize. But yeah, we go in the ditch sometimes and we, we stumble and we veer and we bump into things and have flat tires. All kinds of things go wrong. But Father, we pray that more and more that you would change us, Lord, that you would refine us and purify us, that we would become more and more holy so that even as you intensify and strengthen the trials that come upon us, Lord, that we will still serve you and still go forward in, in service to you. Oh, Father, we pray that those sins that we commit after we have begun to follow you, that we also would take responsibility for them, knowing, oh, Lord, that, that it is us. We are the ones who, who do the wrong. We pray, Lord, that you would then work in us by your spirit, that you would truly change our, our character. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive the blessing of the Lord our God the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.